CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Yes, that's billion with a B. Uh, what is billion with a B? We don't even know what you're talking about. Your Ben Jarofsky show for Tuesday, December 21st is brought to you by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana. Heard a lot of complaints. The Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago, where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink, what kind of pot to smoke, and so much more, including columns from our very own Ben Jarofsky. Chicago Reader, ChicagoReader.com. And if you want to help out this program, you can. ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. J-O-R-A-V is in victory, S-K-Y. It is Tuesday, December 21st, and pre-recorded from my apartment and his Airbnb. Almost said his attic. He's not in his attic. This is the Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, Miles Camflassen. And now your host. Chicago Reader columnist, Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Monkey Business Tuesday, and here's why. Before we get to the monkey business, let me just give a shout out. Miles is already on. I love it when guests show up early. Good God. That's just like money in a bank. Ching, 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 ching. My guest has given me a nickname. Usually I give my de- guest nickname. I am now to be known as Hollywood Ben. Got that, D? All right? <laughs> Hollywood Ben. Yes. Because, yeah, I've gone Hollywood on you guys. I'm out in Cali. I'm in the corner of a kitchen in an Airbnb. <laughs> they got me on this little red. You got to see this refrigerator. It's just pretty wild. I'm in a corner in the kitchen with a little red refrigerator, and I'm cutting deals. I'm very proud to say I cut a deal already for the new year. I'm way ahead of myself. Uh, Miles Conflassen, who's my guest today, and the great Sarah Lazar. Uh, it's going to be a double show, double the two of them from In These Times. So that's going to be a great show. First week of January. Very happy about that. So I may be in Cali, but I'm still working my little cell phone, uh, cutting deals, setting up shows, looking forward to uh, the new year. Got a lot to talk about with Miles. Before I do, I just want to give a shout out to Linda Paul. Uh, great friend of the show, uh, avid listener, uh, very funny email writer, is always sending me suggestions. So last week, Linda sent an email uh, to us. Dennis had said that uh, he was wondering how far you have to leave the Chicago uh, sh- city of Chicago, the limits of the Chicago bound borders uh, to find a Pritzker suck sign. And uh, so we were estimating which, which direction you go in before you find your uh, Pritzker sucks sign. We go southwest. We figured we'd get one first. Well, uh, intrepid Linda Paul discovered one in the city. A Pritzker sucks sign at Montrose near Pulaski, I think it was, or else I forget where. Uh, so uh, you don't even have to leave the city of Chicago. So today she sent me a new email. D. I'm like, I saw India in the headlines. I go, Did, is there a Pritzker sucks sign in India? Whoa. Major. <laughs> but no, this was a really bizarre and twisted story. Uh, that I immediately share with my wife 
uh, because like she likes animal stories. This is a story. Thank you, Linda, for sending it. I don't know if you saw this one, D. Where monkeys in India were attacking dogs. Hmm. Did you see this one? No. no. Monkeys in India were attacking dogs. And apparently monkeys have the ability to uh, do, seek revenge. So like a dog killed him. I am not making this up. This was in the story. Linda Paul sent this to me. Linda, not married to Billy. Paul sent this to me. And uh, the, apparently a dog killed a monkey. And the monkeys seeking vengeance started killing dogs. Over 200 dogs have been killed by monkeys. I'm not quite sure. I read this thing. I'm like, wait, are we high? Are we high? Is that what's going on right now? What's happening? I think this is how COVID started. <laughs> yes. How COVID started. Monkeys killing dogs. Yeah. Miles, I, I this one blew my mind. I thought it was an onion. I thought Linda Paul was messing with me, but I, well, I don't know. She still could be messing with me. Anyway, there's some kind of like deeper relevance to this. It's like a Twilight Zone episode. It's monkeys killing dogs, methodically wiping out dogs, revenge. And they're not even like getting the dog, the right dog. That's the other thing. It's, it's, it's very, there's some overtones with humans. It's like they don't know that they killed the dog that actually killed the monkey that began the whole thing. You know what I'm saying? They're just randomly killing monkeys or dogs. I'm all mixed up. <laughs> anyway, uh, that was something. I just want to thank you, Linda Paul, for sharing it with me. And one last bit that will tie into something that Miles and I will talk about. Trump's speech. Uh, he's gone on tour with Bill O'Reilly. I don't know if you saw this, D. I think they were in Texas. Don't quote me on that. And uh, Trump gave a speech. In the, of course, MAGA was there. Who else would show up to a Trump speech? Uh, and he uh, admitted in the speech that he got the booster. And people booed, which is really, I mean, why are you booing that? Well, they were saying yeah. booster. You didn't hear it. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't hear it right. What, what's what's the uh, the one they do for Biden? Where, you know, about the racing, the NASCAR. Oh, let's go, Brandon. Go, Brandon. Maybe they, maybe this is some kind of go, Brandon, like, like MAGA talk. You need a translator to, like, figure out, decipher what MAGA is saying. Anyway, they booed him. Just the concept of getting the booster, they're booing him. And then Trump's like, don't boo, don't boo. That's my Trump invitation, D. Don't boo. I, I invented the... And poor Trump. I kind of feel sorry for him in a weird way. Because he wants credit for having, quote unquote, created the booster, the vaccine. But he doesn't want to, like, push too hard to get people to take it. You know, he goes, I saved thousands and thousands of lives. By creating the vaccine, but don't feel compelled to take it. Well, duh, Donnie, it only saves the lives if you take it. You can't have it both ways. <laughs> People booing Trump. Forget it. I don't know. MAGA, let's get let's get your message straight. As I understand it, your message is if you want to get the shot, you get the shot. If you don't want to get the shot, you don't get the shot. So why would you boo him for getting the shot? More mixed messages on the COVID front, D. I didn't expect a mixed message from MAGA. By the way, try and say in that, Dennis, a mixed message from MAGA. I did not expect a mixed message from MAGA. I figured they would be consistent on that one, but they're booing Trump. I almost feel sorry for Trump, but it's really hard for me to feel sorry for Trump uh, in any way about anything. All right. Without further ado, I'm going to bring on my distinguished guests, the mild camp last and the pride and joy of Whitney Young. Uh, Beverly area and in these times 
Uh, Miles calls me uh, Hollywood Ben. And she said, he says, I'm the baby Trump because I'm cutting deals, uh, setting up a show with him and Sarah in January. Uh, I love it. Uh, Miles, welcome back. Thank you. Very glad to be here. And uh, yeah, you identified one of like the only wedge issues that has uh, come uh, out in the American right lately, which is how Trump is going to, you know, thread that needle of being trying to take credit while still also running with the uh, anti-vax message, which is taken over the modern Republican Party. So he's he's in a little bit of a bind here. He, he is in a bind. Uh because you're right. He it's like Donald Trump is perfectly capable. You know, this we're, we're doing our uh, COVID talk before we plan to, but that's fine. My, uh, the, my, my plans always get torn up and ripped up and throw on out the window when I do a show, uh, miles, but, uh, yes, uh, Donald Trump is perfectly capable as we all know of lying. I mean, and, and switching his message in midstream, but you could tell like he really, really, really wants credit for the vaccine. I mean, this is not the first time he's taken credit for it. He really, really wants credit for the vaccine. And part of me realizes that truly the the main hope America has uh, for getting ahead of COVID, which I'm not quite sure we're capable as a species of actually doing that for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, but the main hope America has is if Donald Trump just says, you know what, I'm going all out. I want everybody to get the vac- vaccinated because then I get full credit. And so then he starts pushing it to MAGA. But right now, Trump is clearly scared of MAGA. You're right. It is a wedge issue. And he, these dueling impulses on the part of Donald Trump uh, probably are going to lead to more people uh, getting seriously sick. Your thoughts? Well, I think if anything, it's going to flow the other way. I think that Trump is going to have to rein in his uh you know, taking credit in order to appeal to his base because they're the ones that are, you know, deciding his electoral fate and therefore relative power. The, um, the issue is that he, you know, is addicted to self-adulation. And I don't know how he's going to be able to kick that because you're right. I mean, he called it Operation Warp Speed. And it honestly was one of the most successful elements of his presidency was um, getting the uh, research and development in place for the vaccines. But you remember back in the early days of the pandemic, his whole line was, this isn't a big deal. It's like the flu. You can't be scared of it. We only have cases because we're testing. If we didn't test, we'd have cases. Make you know, just downplaying the threat of COVID. Now he says we're saving tens and thousands of lives through the vaccine. So, like, which one is it? You know, are you were you stopping the Spanish influenza, like you said at that speech with Bill O'Reilly, or was it not never a big deal, like you initially said? So he's already kind of changing his tune, but only in order to make himself as much of the hero in the story as possible. But he's going to, I mean, in 2024, he's going to have to figure this out because, you know, you never know, DeSantis or Gosar or one of these people could run hardcore anti-vax even more than Trump and try to peel away support on that side, which is obviously politically and uh, for our country and, you know, in terms of public health would be a disaster. But I think that that's one way that you might see fissures on the right here. And Trump is going to have to figure out how to adapt to it because you can tell in that video, you saw it, you know, the crowd doesn't know how to respond once he mentions vaccines, you know, you'd expect them to either cheer or boo. And then they kind of booed or said booster like Dennis uh, <laughs> joke uh, when he brought that up. 
or, you know, or they just kind of like mumble because they don't know what to do. You know, they're used to having him like be a carnival barker and be very clearly, you know, telling the crowd how to respond. But here he has to kind of adapt to their reaction. So it's a really interesting uh, moment. Uh, I mean, it's full of peril, obviously, for, 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 you know, the population. But as, you know, a spectator of politics, it's a fascinating time to see what's going on in the uh, Trump MAGA world around the vaccine. Yeah, it is a moment of peril. Uh, and uh, this COVID, this latest outbreak is really no joke. I mean, it's happened so fast. We're, we're really moved ahead of where I wanted to begin the conversation, Miles. My fault. Uh, but we might as well just continue the COVID conversation before we get to the thing I wanted. Uh, I, I just really want to, with Christmas uh, right around the corner, don't forget to remind me to talk about presents for boss. Um, but um, no, it's uh, I'm just every day. Well, in our beloved NBA, our Chicago Bulls, 10 Bulls were down. That was just uh, I think that was symptomatic of just where we are as a country. It's spreading so fast. People who who have been vaccinated, I think all of the bulls were vaccinated, uh, still get COVID. So you can still get COVID even if you're vaccinated. So that point is coming home. Then So then America wrestles with the notion, well, why get vaccinated uh, if you still are going can get COVID? Uh, we've dealt with this one before. The severity of the disease is not the same. Uh, if you're vaccinated, there's some protection from the severity of it. But some uh, friends who've been getting it, uh, Miles, I'm sure you have as well. Uh, Vincent E. Norman, a good friend of the show, comes on, talks uh, bulls and bears with me all the time. And uh, Reefer, uh, he has it. He was in the hospital. Shout out to you, Vincent. Uh, he just texted me. He's feeling better. So, uh, Miles, this is a real struggle for our, our, our country right now. Biden is about to give a speech. He may be giving it as we speak. Uh, so we'll probably be be able to talk about the specifics uh, later. What's your sense of where the country has to go uh, to get ahead uh, of this latest outbreak? Well, as you know, I'm not a public health expert or epidemiologist myself. I don't know how much I can offer in terms of what, you know, we should do on a medical level to um, stop this Omicron variant surge that is happening. I think in many ways, it's too late to stop the spread. I mean, it's already in, uh, sounds like close to a majority of states. New York, it's now by far the dominant variant, and they've seen the biggest spike um, of cases ever, just, you know, in the past few days across New York City. And much like was the case in March of 2020, I think that you're seeing New York and NBA be kind of bellwethers or, you know, weather veins of where this virus uh, is going to go and spread uh, as it relates to the rest of the country. And it doesn't look good. I mean, in terms of the um, the transmissibility of the, this variant, it's hard to imagine a scenario where it doesn't take over Delta as the dominant strain nationwide very soon. And that, you know, cases don't spike everywhere. Look at Ohio. It's going up through the roof. So this is all very bleak. The, the, you know, positive side, if you will, is that you're right. The severity is way less for vaccinated people. And, and, and it's, you know, that seems to be holding true. And so you haven't seen the same rise in hospitalizations and certainly in deaths that you did see with the, um, as it correlates to the rise in cases before the vaccines, you know, in winter of last year. So I don't think it's going to be as, you know, as much of a risk to certainly vaccinated and boosted people as when it comes to your ability to survive the virus, you know, and avoid serious illness. Um, thankfully, we still 
you know, the vaccines are still holding up to that. But in terms of the spread, I think we're all going to see people that, you know, know people and, and, and see people that we, you know, know in our lives catching this uh, pretty soon. And it's not good timing for the holidays when everybody's traveling, you know, across the country and, you know, interacting with different people and airports and transit, all these shared spaces. Um, and I think the way that it's happened in the NBA, you're right to point to the NBA because it's spread like wildfire, you know, within the past month. And just now it's starting to show up in other um through other testing regimens. And I think that's because these sports teams were just doing regular testing already and plenty of players were unsymptomatic. I mean, DeMar DeRozan on the Bulls said his only symptom was boredom, you know? And I think for a lot of, and yet he was stuck in isolation for 10 days. I think that's going to be the case for a lot of people. You know, they won't even have any effects or it'll just feel like a cold or something, but that doesn't mean that they can't spread it. And that's the real concern here. And, you know, other places will do, you know, if you go to other countries in Europe, for example, they'll put you up in a hotel for a couple weeks, you know, to um, quarantine you so you don't so you don't spread it. Um, even in New York right now, in New York City, if you test positive, they're going to um, put you up in a you have an option to get put in a hotel room so you can isolate from your um, roommates or house housemates, what have you. Uh, we don't have that in Chicago right now. Um, it sounds like uh, Mayor Lightfoot's going to announce some type of a restriction, so you'll need to show vaccin- proof of vaccination to get into bars and restaurants. I think that's a good, to answer your question, I think that's a good thing to do. I think that um, people just taking more precautions and certainly trying to protect the most vulnerable people around them. Um, whether it be immunocompromised or people too young to get vaccinated. I think just operating with more caution right now is going to be necessary because there's still so much we don't know about um, this particular variant and specifically the downstream consequences of continuing the type of social behavior we've become more relaxed about um, in recent months. That might have to change as well, but there's just uh, a lot of things I think we haven't seen. When it comes to Biden, I think that there's a political question, which is, uh, you know, what was it? Two weeks ago, uh, Jen Psaki got asked at a press conference about sending out tests to people. Um, she laughed about it. She was like, oh, what do you want us to send? You know, this is the press secretary for the White House was like, oh, you want us to send tests to every house? Like, laughed it off. And there was such pushback from how incredulous she sounded about that. They've now agreed. This is one of the things Biden's going to announce is 500 million tests he's going to, they're going to mail out to uh, American households. That's the kind of thing that the government should be doing. You know, we need to have an actual testing regime and we don't have that in this country let alone contact tracing. I think that the Biden administration made a calculated decision to just put all of its faith in the vaccine fixing it and forget about all the other stuff they promised to do when they were running for office, you know, in 2020. They said that they were going to, you know, invoke the Defense Production Act and um, spend tons of, uh, you know, resources through the state in order to set up testing sites and um, vaccination sites and everything. Well, after that first round of vaccines, they basically, you know, closed shop on that whole plan. And yet the virus didn't go away. If anything, it just mutated to this more transmissible strain. So I think we're going to need to see a lot more political will on the side of uh, Biden and the Democrats. The problem is he's pretty politically weakened now. Now, you know, in terms of uh, how his agenda has fallen apart in Congress 
Chris and how untrusted he is around a lot of these issues. So it's going to be a little bit more of a, a, a heavy lift, but I think there's going to need to be some more response than we've seen. And I think that this sending out a test that they're announcing today is an example of the fact they're going to have to respond to changing uh, realities as it comes to both public health and the, the politics of all this. Absolutely. That last point, changing realities. Uh, the state of COVID changes really like month to month, week to week. Uh, the spikes become real and then uh, people freak out. Uh, and then politicians who are trying to follow where we are at the moment and just be at, in the moment, uh, Miles, because I think like the one takeaway uh, they uh, had from the 2020, the original shutdown of the of the of society to protect us from COVID. They're not going back. That they figure that's unpopular uh, across the board. So they don't want to be the part of speaking to the Democrats. They don't want to be the party that does that. And of course, the Republicans they're going to resist it every step of the way. So it's sort of like you. I watch. Dennis talks about this all the time, mixed messages. And I just watch like a week to week, the messages change. Uh, so here in the city of Chicago, they're constantly changing. I mean, Lori Lightfoot and uh, her, her health department are just week to week. There's a new message that's going out, encouraging people to, you know, go out, get together, be with your friends. And then all of a sudden, uh, no, we're going to have to crack down. We're going to have to have cards at the door. You know, everybody at the Sky Game, I'm not going to forget this one. Everybody at the Sky, you're supposed to wear a mask indoors. Everybody's wearing a mask except for Lori Lightfoot, you know. So that's in that's just Chicago. But it's, Miles, I'm getting so excited here thinking about the NBA. I'm watching all these basketball games. People packed in the stadiums. The Utah Jazz game, I don't know if you saw that the other night. There was nobody wearing a mask. My wife and I go, where the masks? You know, last night at the Bulls game, I would say Chicago is a lot better than Utah. I would say three quarters, whatever they showed the state, the, the stadium, have masks. Of course, then there's those the guys who have the masks, but they're like only over their chin. <laughs> I'm like, Miles, come on, man. What, what makes you think that's protecting anyone? It's only over yeah. your chin. So do you see what I'm saying? It's as though uh, we, we really like, we're, we just keep shifting as a society almost based on where we're at a week to week. I was talking to Nate, uh, who is the um, weekend producer for us. You know Nate. Uh, and he was saying how difficult it was in Chicago to get a test. You know, and Saki's laughing at that and mocking that because that's where we were two weeks ago. Now you're right. Oh, we're going to have how many did he say? 500 million tests he's going to provide. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, Nate's completely right. My experience, I've been trying to find um, at-home tests, and they're sold out everywhere. And, they, the, you know, Walgreens, CVS, Target. Uh, Walmart, all these big chains are the ones that, you know, because we basically privatized our response to COVID and just said, you know, we'll let the market deal with it. And because for one, there's a supply chain crisis. And number two, the market is interested in profits, not in you know, providing the necessary resources to for public health. Of course, there's huge um, blocks in that uh, chain and people can't access what they need, which is kind of the most critical time. And you'd think that they would have like seen, oh, people are going to be traveling for the holidays around Christmas and New Year's. That's when we should make sure we have enough of a stockpile of 
um, testing resources in order to provide people with that. Well, they're not. And it's enough to make you think, you know, they don't want to shut down the holidays one because, you know, you don't want to stop people from being with their loved ones. I mean, that was the great promise of the Biden era was like, you know, you're going to be able to see grandma again. Um, so they don't want to, you know, give a different message from that. But I think it also is the commerce associated with it. You know, they don't want to see people getting scared and staying home and not shopping or not spending money. Um, and I think certainly on the, with the Lightfoot administration, that is, was, was a calculation that they made because otherwise they would have started doing a lot of these uh, restrictions. They're becoming more open to, uh, weeks ago when we first knew about this new variant and everything. So cynically, I do think that there's a definitely profit motive at the heart of a lot of the decision-making that's going on. And, but the problem is, as we saw early on in the pandemic, people aren't going to go out if they don't feel safe. And as we've seen these cases rise, even without actual like sh- quote unquote shutdowns, a lot of businesses are voluntarily shutting down and people are just, you know, hungering down more because they want to protect themselves um, and their families. You're right to point out though, that the Republican party and certainly many Republicans are not seeing it that way, but that's also because, you know, they're getting all their information from their local, uh, officials and if they happen to be on the right they're probably not going to care much about covid in the first place just look at this turning point usa conference that's going on right now with all these you know tucker carlson and celebrating kyle rittenhouse this really in this really ugly way they've got these like pyrotechnics on stage and a giant packed auditorium not a single mask in sight but they're all indoors doing this thing while omicron's going around so of course the message people are going to take from that is oh covid's over it's fine um and without real leadership from the top i think that's you're still going to see this patchwork market-based response and it's been shown to not work very well i think you know and you mentioned republican party i see this is why i have a hard time uh miles i have many lefties come on the show uh even leftier than you, uh, a different kind of left, and they rip the the Democrats. And you know, I let them on; they're my friends. I love where their minds are going. I love to engage them and stuff. But I find the Republican Party. And this is what I say to them: so freaking worthless on every issue. They don't engage on any issue in a meaningful way. You pick an issue in this country today: climate change, race relations, police relations, criminal justice. It's just they don't want to engage. They don't want to come up with proposals. They don't in many and, and COVID is also on this list. They don't want to have any ideas for uh, solutions. You can't even get them to acknowledge that it's a problem half the time. If you say it's a problem, they try to use that against you as a weapon. They're freaking worthless. And you're right. So they have this their little convention. Where is it in Arizona? Is that where you say? I can't remember where it was. Where Kyle Rittenhouse sure. went. Got the standing O. It doesn't matter where it is. The point is, is nobody's wearing a mask, you know, and it's become a partisan issue. It's just, so it's really difficult for me. Um, It's just a really hard time because my basic reaction is just that the Democrats just have to just work from the assumption that they were alone in this uh, and just push ahead regardless. We're going to get in a mansion in a little bit. But I, before we leave this one, I have to say your thought, I wrote it down, privatizing, uh, private, private response to COVID. It is so true. 
It's like the one thing Republicans say, let the market take care of it. That's supposedly their mantra. Let the market take care of it. So they don't want government uh, in any way having a role uh, in battling this uh, pandemic when, in fact, it really is government's role to do this. Because, And here's where I really agree with Leonard Goodman, who comes on the show from time to time. I do believe we cannot just leave this to big pharma. I think Leonard's absolutely right. Like, why would we trust big pharma uh, with the truth when it's all tied into their profits as a profit motive for them? So to a certain degree, we need some independence over big pharma. But effectively, Miles, the way we're dealing with the the, uh, vaccine, we're subsidizing big pharma, paying their prices so that everybody can get vaccinated and kind of just believing whatever their press releases state. Your thoughts on all this? Yeah, there's no... uh, The government's role is basically providing resources to these companies to, you know, research and um, invest and do their uh, production of the various products they're, they're putting out. And then they have no say over effectively how the companies go about it. I mean, the, this is the absurdity of having the, you know, it's like when Bernie Sanders used used to say the, you know, they've got, uh, the socialism for the rich and rugged individualism for the, the, the poor. It's like, uh, you know, quoting another great uh, socialist of our time, but uh, it's just an example of like, you know, you, we subsidize, we do all this um, corporate welfare and, you know, provide massive amounts of subsidies through the state to prop up private companies to carry out, you know, missions that effectively would uh, help the public good. And yet the public doesn't have any control over how then those companies operate or how they, um, what they're required to to do. And when it comes to vaccine technology sharing, I mean, that is such a critical issue. I mean, there's no way that the, you know, you brought up earlier, you didn't know if the species could even respond to the climate crisis. Well, it's certainly not if we only have like 1% of the global South vaccinated. And that's the, the reason for that is because we don't share the technologies. I mean, there's um, over a hundred facilities in Africa and um, uh, India and other countries uh, in the global South that could be producing mRNA vaccines right now, but they don't have the technology because they're being blocked at the WTO by all these rich countries that don't want us to, share patent information that is a private response to a very public problem and there's no way that you're going to be able to you know get enough people immunized or vaccinated against um, covid to stop more mutations of different strains if we don't have a global vaccination campaign you know no amount of boosting is going to stop that so even you know within the u.s so i think there needs to be a, a, a governmental response and the biden administration has been very hesitant to uh, to embrace any of that you know if anything i don't want to you know give more credit to uh, the trump administration than it's due but if you think back i mean when we really felt we were in a moment of crisis there was a lot of things that happened very quickly you know sending out stimulus checks an eviction moratorium um, pausing of student loan uh, uh payments and invoking the defense production act and getting you know there to be uh manufacturing of uh, masks and other uh ppe and um that happened under trump in a moment of like governmental uh, and national crisis 
And we responded through having the state actually intervene. And now we're seeing more hesitancy around that, despite the fact we just laid it out. I mean, we're in a crisis. You know, we're still this this pandemic is still going on and it's still upending people's lives. And at the same time, what do do we see happening? The eviction moratorium is being revoked. They're about to they said they're going to restart student loan payments soon. Um, This, you know, we're not getting any more direct support in the form of checks and other things like we need to learn the lessons of the successes of earlier on in the pandemic. And it seems like, you know, the Biden team has not done that yet. I mean, the the agreement to send out tests is a positive thing, but that should only be the first in like many steps that the government should take in order to, to change this dynamic. So it's not a fully privatized affair. Well, let's get into that because this gets into the psychology of Democrats and Republicans and the way Democrats uh, allow themselves to be manipulated by Republicans and their rhetoric. So follow me what I'm about to say. Uh, Donald Trump felt no hesitation about uh, backing a plan to send checks. If you recall, at the end, remember he said the stimulus check that they were sending out wasn't enough? This was after he was defeated, uh, and uh, he just said it wasn't enough. He would double it. I forget the exact amounts. And and McConnell moved against him, didn't want to give that much, and so uh, and Trump barely didn't really care. But when he was president, he had no reservation about – breaking Republican notions of not giving people money. He not only gave them the money, he made sure that he got credit for it by having his name on the check, which is something I don't think any Democratic president would go that far. Yeah, we're going to give this money to you right now. Then when he does that then, but meanwhile, like, 364 days of the year, the Republican Party is bashing the Democrats for giveaways, for welfare, for discouraging people from working, for not having a, a working spirit uh, in America, for making America lazy, etc. and so forth. Uh, and then the Democrats, they move right. They get so intimidated by their Republican rhetoric. They got to prove to the Republicans that they're, you know, not wimpy liberals. Then they pull back. And, and Miles, it's, you're absolutely correct. Republicans are not afraid of being utterly hypocritical. Nixon went to China after spending his entire life bashing communism. He opened up relations with the largest communist country in the world. Had no reservation. Any Democrat who did that would have been bashed by the Republicans uh, as weak and soft on communism. And they would have looked for co- the commie influence in, with his party. You see what I'm saying? And that issue is the same way across the board. We have Joe Manchin battling uh, Biden uh, and the Democrats. Well, let's just take go right here right now uh, on things like child care, you know, and he's issuing these statements. I don't know if you saw this over the weekend uh, that he said that uh, people took their stimulus checks and bought drugs. I'm like, he sounds like Reagan back talking about welfare queens cashing their welfare checks and buying alcohol. To me, uh, Miles, I just believe that the Democrats have to have the courage of their convictions and not worry about what Republicans say about them. But it just seems like my whole life, Democrats have been uh, afraid of the Republican counterpush. What's your take on all this? I think there's a reflexive uh, hesitancy that is built in now uh, to most 
people involved in the Democratic Party establishment where they're scared of being called, you know, radicals for one. Um, and that they think that there is um, some type of political benefit or reward out of um, tamping down the left flank and setting themselves apart from, you know, who are the the progressive like rabble rousers, you know, and that's how you can, it's triangulation basically. I mean, it's just the, that is, is still deep seated within um, the party establishment. Nowhere is that better reflected than Joe Manchin, I think, because he's, uh, you know, if you actually had the, courage of his convictions, whatever, with what he's saying about the fact that, yeah, he thinks that people are spending their child tax credit money on drugs. For one thing, that's probably true, but the money is the drugs they're buying at like insulin and, you know, other like life-saving medications that they need because we have this privatized healthcare system that doesn't provide people the basic um, needs uh, that they need to survive. But, you know, him saying that is uh, out of the GOP playbook. And a lot of what he says is, but yet he's not fully on board with the GOP. He claims to be a Democrat and wants to, you know, be this uh, independent uh, voice, almost like a John McCain, but for the, the Democrats. And I think he relishes that role. But it's honestly, it's the opposite of courageous because he's just giving in. He's just operating as a spoiler, basically, for the Republicans while still claiming he's the guy that's keeping the left flank in check, which is what um, all these moderate centrist uh uh, Congress people try to do because they want to set themselves apart from what they see as the extreme when in fact I mean if you look at polling the most extreme thing you could do is you know kill a bill that is incredibly popular across the country specifically the social um, benefit programs in it like the child tax credit like paid leave like um, you know capping the price of insulin which build back better would do at least as it comes to copays and yet he's doing the opposite thing that you know is popular and standing in the way of it completely and effectively killing it and seemingly doing it for the most uh, petty of reasons i mean if you listen to what he both he says and like his longtime friend this guy wrote a piece in the hill saying that the white house's statements um, were too uncivil for him because they named him and that's what caused him to walk away. And it's like, you know, this is so, I, I don't deny that this is how Washington works and it's all about personal grievances and everything, but it's such a sad reflection of our politics that, you know, this is, the, it, you know, there's so much we talk about, you know, trying to convince and persuasion and, you know, the importance of, you know, following what the public wants. These guys are operating in a completely different uh, set of incentives, right? That focus more on their personal pride than anything else. And I think there's a lot of that going on with Manchin that overrides any ideological positioning um, around his um, where he lands. Because look, he supported the American Rescue Plan. He supported the CARES Act under. Um, under Trump, and he just voted for this massive military budget, you know, almost $800 billion that was not, there's no revenue, you know, pay fors in it. It's all just deficit spending, basically. And yet he didn't have any complaints about that. So, I mean, you know, it's hard to try to pathologize these people, I think. Um, but what is clear is that it's not just a question of 
kind of political positioning when it comes to somebody like Joe Manchin and a lot of people in the Democratic Party. It's this learned helplessness and, um, you know, desire to want to just make sure they're as far away from the left as possible. That is like one running current in American politics that continues to this day. When, that's the last thing I'll say in this, you know, it's devastating that Build Back Better has now been shelved because that was Biden's agenda, basically. And I mean, that if he had accomplished that, it would be a real um, productive uh, cap on a, the first year of his presidency and show that he was able to do what he promised, which was bring people together and get things passed in the face of Washington gridlock. I mean, that was Biden's big promise. And now it looks like that was all for naught. And they wasted a whole year negotiating this bill that didn't go anywhere and you know it's it, it's incredibly sad especially in the absence of executive actions on his part but what it did do is showed the um political wisdom of the squad who all voted against that bipartisan infrastructure bill because they saw this coming a mile away they knew as soon as you uh, decoupled that Build Back Better bill with the bipartisan one, that's all you were ever going to get was whatever passed first. And everyone said no. You know, they got lambasted in the media, AOC and Ilan Omar and Rashida Tlaib. They all got, you know, uh, members of their own party. The Democrats were calling them names and saying, you know, that they're working against the interests of the party. Well, they were right. They voted against that because they knew they were, they, that by voting for it, they would give up any leverage. And they were right because now there's no leverage over mansion and he can operate like a joker you know just watching the world burn he doesn't doesn't seem to care as long as his you know buddies in the coal industry are still sitting pretty so yeah it's a um it's it's a difficult time to try to understand the intentions certainly behind joe mansion but i think what we can all say is that the democrats did a pretty poor job of uh, uh delivering on their their big promises all right you said something i wrote it down i'd like you to take a deeper dive on it uh, you said learned helplessness. Now, I don't know if that's something you just coined while you were on a riff or that's something that's out there that I haven't uh, uh, stumbled upon yet. Uh, if it's something that you just said in a riff, I'm going to give you all the credit in the world. If it's something that's already been written about, I'll give that person who wrote it uh, credit. Learned helplessness. What did you mean by that? Well, our, our brains are all sponges that take in things and then regurgitate them once we, uh, you know, wring them out uh, on podcasts and such. So I don't know exactly uh, if that has been an idea that's been elucidated by others, but it did just kind of come out of my mouth right now. But I did, I did have a point with it, which is that, you know, the, the longer that things don't change and people are used to things not changing, then you're the less likelihood you're going to want to stick your neck out to change anything because the Democratic Party has operated at, at its most effective in our, you know, at least in my lifetime and in, in recent decades as an opposition party. And when people, you know, there's there's critics like David Sirota that would argue that the Democrats, in fact, want to lose or at least not that, like they, they, they're more comfortable as an opposition party than they are to a governing majority. And the reason for that is because people have expectations, you know, for to, to deliver once you're in power. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily true. I don't I certainly don't think that a lot of Democrats, especially you know, people the caucus with the Democrats like Bernie um, would have spent so much time working on developing and trying to sell this reconciliation bill, this Build Back Better bill, if they wanted to lose. You know, I don't. So I, I think for, for the most part, they do 
have uh, political goals, but the learned helplessness kicks in when it's, you know, not just Manchin, but all the people behind Manchin that he's running cover for that also, you know, these centrist Democrats that um, similarly don't want to see the type of um, massive investments, for example, in climate mitigation or, you know, transformational changes to childcare and pre-K that would come with passing those policies. They're probably opposed to it. Um, and are fine to just see things continue as they are because there's no real political price to pay for not doing anything when people are when the public is so used to things not getting done anyway. Um, I think that's a recipe for not just electoral disaster, but for you know creating a politics that are um, stunted and really lacking in you know a meaning and value, it becomes more of a performance or a spectacle than anything else, than, you know, a source of producing legislation. But I do think that that is on the minds of many of the moderate Democrats in the caucus, that they're, they're happy to just go along and get along. And if Manchin kills this bill and they don't have to do anything, then that's fine because that's what they're, what they've been used to for years. And then if the Republicans take over, you know, Congress next year, they can run against MAGA and Trump and then not have to run on anything they, they actually do did. So that's the kind of learned helplessness. I, I, I mean, it's just, you know, no action begets more no action. And uh, the only way to change that is by injecting some actual transformation into the into the system. And that was the promise of, you know, the Bernie Sanders campaign and much of the, the, the left. And I think people are still obviously trying to um, enact that kind of change, certainly on local levels, um, if not in the White House. But um, the Democratic Party on a whole, I don't think is there yet. Yeah. And uh, uh, Bernie was right. Let's just say that one more time. Not right wing, but <laughs> right as incorrect. Uh, I'm going to go back to what you said about Sirota. David Sirota, a good friend of the show. Uh, he's the real Hollywood guy these days. Uh, his movie is out with Jennifer Lawrence. And we can't even talk to Sirota anymore because I'm sorry. I am a David Sirota and I'm in Hollywood. Uh, his movie, I think it's called Up in the Air. I'm going to go see it, David. Don't worry. Don't look uh, up. Don't look up my bad. Yeah, don't look up. Typical Ben just screwed up that title. Uh, don't worry. Uh, uh, Dennis will edit it out. Uh, anyway, don't look up with Adam McKay. Uh, but uh, I would say this, and you, you hit it at the end. Uh, it's, it's not that the Democrats want to lose. It's that the Democrats don't stand for anything. Uh, and so they're only, they're only on their uh, – they only know what to do as a collective party, you think, when they're not in power. And that's, as you said, run against Trump, run against MAGA, run against whoever the Republicans are, uh, and then tell the left flank, listen, don't push too hard for anything because uh, we need as much as you uh, want that we're not going to give you. What's far worse is the Republicans. So we need to defeat the Republicans. So just shut up. Join the, the coalition to defeat the Republicans. That's what Democrat Miles, that was the lesson that somehow or other Bill Clinton took from the 1972 loss, the devastating loss of, of McGovern to Nixon. Uh, and uh, he took that lesson, got a bunch of Democrats to buy into it. And here we are 50 years later. Good God. Still making the same old mistakes, Miles. Still making the same old mistakes. Uh, but in other words, just don't you don't really believe in anything except winning an election because the Republicans are worse. And I, I frankly don't think that's a, a solution to any of the problems that uh, we're addressing. That that cowardice uh, to promote 
like something that you believe. Like, Miles, tell me right now, what do the Democrats believe in, in your humble opinion? If you want my uh, honest answer, I'd say that the the core animating principle of the um, Democratic Party as it stands is to continue a cycle of, uh, you know, political mechanizations that involve uh, the donor class receiving benefits uh, that, that flow through political decision making, um, that, that we keep uh uh, war machine running through uh, massive military budgets um, and that we uh, uh, as Democrats uh, if, if, you know speaking from uh, the perspective of the Democratic Party establishment uh, we separate ourselves from the Republicans because we you know believe in reproductive freedom broadly we believe in um, the organized labor, despite often not delivering on any promises to them, and that uh, there's some you know level of uh, support for general social entitlement welfare programs uh, along the edges. That said, I think that you know what the Democratic Party has run on uh, is its is its agenda, and that agenda was what's in the Build Back Better bill, which is a lot of the same stuff that I would promote myself. I mean, I believe in, you know, Medicare for all and, uh, uh, you know, national funded education and all kinds of social housing and more expansive policies than the Democratic Party does. But the Democratic agenda that was written uh, this past year was pretty progressive and included things like expanding childcare and pre-K and uh, expanding Medicare and all these other things that were in the Bernie Sanders written uh, build back better bill. And yet the democratic party won't support it, you know? So it's like, do they really believe in that stuff? They say that they do. And then they run on it. I mean, they all campaigned on doing all these things on closing the pay gap with women on, you know, reducing and letting Medicare negotiate drug prices, all this stuff. But then if you don't actually do it, when you have control of all three branches of government, I don't believe that you believe in that, you know? And so that's why the more cynical answer always comes back of like, you know, they're just trying not to upset the general power relations as they stand. And the thing is what, you know, what people that object to that take would say is that it's a 50, 50 Senate. What are you going to do? You know, you got Joe Manchin, a right wing Republican. So you can't actually pass this stuff, this, you know, historic legislation with those type of margins. Well, you know, who just gave away the game on that is David Axelrod, who, you know, I don't know if he's a friend of the show, but uh, fellow fellow podcaster from uh, University of Chicago. And of course, the architect of Barack Obama's uh, historic campaigns. He he's tweeted out, hey, look, back in 2010, 2009, 2010, we had 60 senators and we still couldn't you know get this stuff done so don't be so hard on biden for you know not being able to deliver because even with a super majority we still couldn't pass this stuff well if we can't pass it with 60 votes like how many votes do you need to actually pass anything you know where when's the next time the democrats are going to have a 60 vote majority and then that they can't even pass anything it just it kind of crystallizes how that helplessness is just ingrained across the party. If they can't, even with those level of support, that's going to be structurally almost impossible to replicate in the next decade because of gerrymandering and redistricting and, um, and everything. It's just, you know, it's hard to believe that the democratic party really stands for all the stuff that um, it claims to. And that's in in its agenda. Um, The more, the most cynical part of me thinks 
Um, and this is obviously speculation, but the main thing that Bernie Sanders was allowed to do after he took over a budget as budget chairman was to write this reconciliation bill. And so it's kind of been his project the whole time. And in it, they included Biden's agenda, all the stuff that he ran on, all the elements that are in Build Back Better. And yet all they've done from day one is just slice and dice that whole thing down to morsels. Um, You know, went from 10 trillion to now 1.7, which has just been effectively killed. It's enough to make you think that they were just doing this all to get back, you know, at the guy who uh, embarrassed the party Uh, establishment throughout the campaign by being openly critical and certainly openly critical of Joe Manchin. And again, I know people will say that's not how politics works. That's just pettiness. But I think the pettiness informs a lot more of our politics than we think. Well, that no wait now we're um, they work hand in glove. So uh, the corporate interests uh, work hand in glove with the pettiness. I know so many uh, centrists uh, who are dear friends of this show. I can't say Axelrod's a good friend of the show. Uh, he's never been on the show. I'm not talking to David Axelrod since, I want to say, the early 90s. Uh, I used to play in a basketball league with him. By the way, this is a, on a tangent. Axelrod's I gotta, used to have a hell of a shot. Yes, I know. I know we're on a tangent, and, but David Axelrod had a great, he had like a set shot. And he was really good. He didn't jump. He's not a jumper, okay? He's got, you know, he's not going to move a lot, but he had a nice shot. And he was the biggest cheater when it came to keeping score. You ever been in a pickup game, Miles, where, like, guys just are so creative with the score? Like, the, the greatest of all time is my dear friend Wilfredo Cruz. I'm going to tangent with it, a tangent here. David Axrod is second only to Wilfredo Cruz and the most creative scorekeeping I ever saw. So, like, no matter what, <laughs> what the actual score is, somehow or other, David Axrod is keeping a running score in a, a pickup game. His team is already either – one up or one below. I'm like, what? Anyway, I tell you what I tell you. But uh, no, I uh, I think that I'm going to take exception with you and actually sort of agree with Axelrod based on your quote on his Twitter thing. Uh, the Democrats don't have control of the Senate. And this is something we talk about with David Ferris all the time, uh, who's a regular on this show. The Democrats don't have control of the Senate. It's... And, and what's, again, I come back to the worthlessness of the Republican Party. It's just I'm talking at a practical level. So you remember Susan Collins, Senator Susan Collins, when it came to whether Brett Kavanaugh would be on the Supreme Court, or Neil Gorsuch would be on the Supreme Court, and she was like pondering it and reading law, and then uh, up late at night writing her thoughts out before she eventually voted the party line. Okay? We don't have anyone in the Republican Party doing that right now. So right now we have Joe Manchin uh, bickering with his fellow Democrats, negotiating, I have that in quotes, with Biden on this package. Not one Republican is in that room. Not one Republican is straying from the party line. There's not one. You can't think of what It's like they always say the reason Manchin's so important is that the Republicans are unified on it. Yeah. So the Republicans, it's cool. They don't have to do anything, huh? Democrats are the only party that has to do anything in this country. So that's why Manchin is uh, so significant. And from the the get-go, Miles, he's made it clear he's not viewing this as a partisan thing. He's not viewing this uh, as uh, something that's good for the country. He's got his own agenda. So you know what I'm saying? I've never felt 
that the Democrats have controlled uh, the Senate. And to your other point, and I'll let you respond, you are absolutely correct. The animus that centrists have toward Bernie Sanders, four years after 2000, no, it's what is it, five years after 2016, almost six years after, they will never forgive him. He didn't even do anything. He, 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 he went out for Hillary Clinton in October. But you got Howard. Remember when Hillary went on the Howard Stern show? And Howard's like, of all people in the world to be criticized, you know, to be just sucking up to Hillary Clinton, Howard Stern. What a hypocrite. But he's like, Hillary, uh, do we still hate Bernie? What? Bernie did more than you, Howard Stern, to elect Hillary Clinton? You're the reason Donald Trump is a celebrity. You spent all those years in the 90s promoting him. Now you're bashing Bernie? See what I'm saying, Miles? But Howard Stern just speaks for so many centrist Democrats. He's, they've like come to him and they've gotten older, you know what I mean? All these boomers, you know, they, 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 they don't want to stand for anything. They just throw it all away. And I do, you are absolutely correct. I don't know if you have any centrist friends, but you have a private conversation with a centrist friend? They can't stand Nina Turner. Oh, my God, don't get them started on Nina Turner. They still remember Bernie's people booing Hillary at the convention. They hate Bernie Sanders. You may be onto something. It could just be personal. It could be grade school, cafeteria politics going on uh, in Washington right now while the whole country uh, needs help. Your thoughts? I don't know if the I mentioned earlier that maybe uh, Joe Manchin is just full jokerified, you know, that he's gone on his like, I don't care what happens. I'm king of the world, um, which would be, you know, almost sociopathic considering the downstream consequences of his you know, refusal to accept anything um, and how he's dragged this whole process out. I mean, this has been such a dance this whole year um, in Washington has just been trying to uh, acquiesce to Manchin's demands to bring him along. And here we are at the end of the year. What happens is that, you know, he stabs Biden by going on Fox news to say, I'm not going to, support this thing after it was all he was the only one negotiating it privately with biden that said um i you know want to be as charitable as possible and non-cynical as possible it's a resolution for 2022 um stay stay positive uh there's a chance that at this point because as you said the democratic party itself is not in a strong position in terms of their senate uh so-called senate majority in fact it's just an even split but obviously uh, vice president harris breaks the tie um the what you need to do is just get whatever mansion's willing to do done because that's better than nothing and i mean that's how our politics has operated forever right is that we get like the crumbs and just say hey it's better than nothing the promise of this bill was it was not going to be that it was actually going to be transformational but it at least crumbs is better than nothing and that is unfortunately the dynamic that still persists and republicans are fine with nothing obviously so where can we get some stuff passed? I mean, Manchin had previously said he was open to $1.5 trillion in spending. Does that just mean it's got to come down from $1.75 to $1.5? I don't, or is he just trying to kill it all and have be operating in bad faith um, already? I don't know. I mean, it doesn't look good. It certainly doesn't look like anything will pass. But uh, because of all those realities you rightly cited about Democrats not really having full control, um, I think it's in the 
the best interest of the country to just pass something, you know, uh, some version of this and that, um, or at least have them vote on it, you know, have the, have make, make him take that vote on the Senate floor that said, I don't know if that's going to, uh, happen or not. And regardless, there's plenty of executive action that, that Biden could do in the meantime uh, and trying to get to the heart of what is going on in uh, Joe Manchin's head as he you know, drives his Maserati to his personal yacht while uh, complaining about all the luxuries he thinks that the poor West Virginia re- uh, constituents are spending their $300 uh, child care payments on. It's hard to like get in that guy's head so i think the best thing to do is just try to get get something done and just go full real politique on on this thing and i think most i think even bernie sanders understands that at this point it's just kind of like well you know this is they they, he's he's brought us to the brink basically and now we need to either um do something or just move on and 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 focus on something else no i uh i would take even out of that sentence i think bernie sanders is a very pragmatic guy been watching him for a long long time uh and uh yeah i he would if if mansion i i actually you know what by the way i wrote that i've got you've got two write downs with uh, big (laughs) exclamation marks uh which and i was just gonna blatantly steal from you uh, resolution for 2022, stay positive. I'm with you on that. I'm real. I'm going to try to, to, I'm not going to shame voters in 2022. I'm not going to uh, <laughs> accentuate uh, the negative. I'm not going to be cynical. Uh, I'm not going to be jaded. Be positive. <laughs> but uh, I think that's an excellent uh, resolution to have. And so in that line, I do believe, uh, that Manchin and Biden will cook up something. I don't know what, but it's and you are so right. It is such a joke. We were talking about how uh, we both were watching Succession this is before the show, ladies and gentlemen. Miles and I could do a whole show on Succession, but just the indulgence of the rich people in Succession, the, the amount of wealth they have, and how they just squander it. There's one scene you haven't gotten to this show yet, Miles. It's the next one where you're at, which is. So they have this big part. Succession is just uh, a TV show it's, uh, on HBO, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen it. It's about this fabulously wealthy family that's more or less based on the Murdochs. Anyway, uh, and uh, very powerful, uh, just extremely conservative family. And anyway, they have so much wealth. They just throw, so they're, ha- they're going to have this huge feast. With, and they have all this meat and lobster and the sumptuous feasts they're going to have. And then the father has a change of heart, just throws it all away. Just get rid of that. And they just, you know, the, the cooks and the, the, the throw it all away just because he said he ordered. And it's just so it's just so funny that like Joe Manchin would limit uh, his denunciation of people for not what buying their vegetables to the poor. When he must be so aware of having being a 74-year-old man in America and being a wealthy man for the last 40 years, the rich people are just way- – they gave him all that uh, tax breaks back in 2019, Miles. Or was it 2017, whenever they passed their little tax break bill? And do you think Republicans, like, save the money? You get what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> you think they're like, you know, put it aside to help poor people? They threw it away. But only yeah. – Poor people, he denounces go. 
well, they threw it into the stock market or, to, you know, some places where they can, you know, or like NFT markets into like the crypto world and invented a whole new marketplace in which to play around with this, you know, fake money that they have more of than they could ever spend in a lifetime. Or they threw it into, you know, real estate and invested in some of these like massive townhouses that just sit empty while we have a homelessness crisis in America. So like those are kind of um, the places that the, the super rich uh, or even just the, the, the wealthy tend to tend to spend their money because they need to, they need to keep it cycling. You know, that's the only way to, you know, expand their profits as if um, capital is in motion. And so they don't want to, they don't want to just sit on it or save it or what have you. It's got to constantly be, um, moving and when it moves often what it does is uh horrible things when it comes to you know impacting the 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 economy for working people because when the stock market balloons and you know these uh new markets and industries like uh like crypto uh blow up the people that face the consequences of that are the people that have money you know in uh um, a retirement fund or something that's linked to the stock market that then gets as we saw in 2008, can get uh, obliterated when it comes to these bubbles eventually popping. So I don't think it's just uh, not only are the rich people not just saving the money, they're doing actively awful things with the tax breaks that they get. Whereas, you know, as we said, like with a poor working mom is getting 300 bucks a month to help her kids, she's probably going to be spending it on stuff to like stay alive and survive under um, the hyper exploits of, of late capitalism versus what Joe Manchin spending his would be spending on uh, his money on, which is probably yeah, tune up on the Maserati or whatever. Uh, all right. Uh, there's so much left on my uh, agenda to discuss with you, but I must get to the one thing I wanted to talk to you and I haven't, we were been on talking for an hour. I haven't even got to it. Uh, this happened Saturday morning, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, I was reading uh, every every Saturday. I get the In These Times Digest. They send it to me, and so I read the stories that are in these times. The publication that Miles is an editor and writer for, and you wrote one this Saturday. By the way, uh, so Sarah Lazar, the aforementioned Sarah Lazar, we're going to get to her. She wrote about Big Pharma, great story, but we'll hold off on that until she comes back. Uh, just comes on the show next January. But you wrote one on Saturday, had me laughing out loud. And uh, particularly because I've been watching Succession. Every, and again, in Succession, this is powerful tyrant, runs this huge corporation, runs his family. He's dictatorial. He barks and yells and screams, intimidates and bullies. He's the boss. Everybody sucks up to him because they're so afraid of him. They're looking for his acceptance. They're looking for his compliments. They're looking for him to praise them. So he controls them, manipulates them. You wrote this essay. This was, this was on my mind. I'm watching the show. And out of nowhere, Miles writes this essay about... <laughs> this tradition we have in America, I guess, I don't know if it's just America, people buying presents for their bosses on Christmas. I laugh when I read it. <laughs> Please, boss, be nice to me. Here, I'm going to give you a tie, <laughs> whatever you're going to give your boss. Miles, take us, take us, uh, do a little deep dive here on what you wrote, uh, what it says about where we are right now in the year 2021. There's a lot of contradictions at the heart of our modern capitalist system, but perhaps none is more uh, disturbing and bizarre than the uh, annual tradition of holiday time comes around. You know, it's it's when we're meant to have 
sharing and spreading joy and cheer uh, be the foundations of how we, you know, approach the season and what we want to, how we want to, you know, tell people uh, in our families and our social circles um, how much we care about them. Uh, and what do we do when it comes to the workplace? Well, uh, if you're part of the one third of U.S. workers that report buying gifts for your boss, uh, what you're doing is just recycling whatever income you made back to the very person who bestowed it upon you in the first place. And, you know, I, I know that it can sound preachy, especially because the headline of the article is stop buying holiday gifts for your boss. Uh, and I don't like to be in the business of telling people what to do, but on this point, I want to take a pretty firm stand that this is, we got to stop this madness. We got to, we just got to get, get, get it out of our heads and, you know, full stop. I have a little caveat in there where, you know, I say, if you don't, uh, you know, if you're, if you're inspired to buy gifts with, for somebody that happens to be higher up on the ladder in your workplace, maybe your friends, maybe it's a small shop and whatever, there could be potential exceptions, but on the whole, all that does when you're buying, when you're spending the the money from your wage labor uh, to often what happens is pooling money for bosses. Uh, you know, whole workplaces will say, okay, everybody send in 40 bucks, 50 bucks, and then we're going to buy this big thing for the boss. You're just giving your money away, you know, and this is, this happens in workplaces, the country over, especially in office places, but any kind of, and I have a personal experience with this, which I didn't even put into the piece, but, uh, I worked at a call center for a while, uh, here in Chicago and it was, it was a weird place. We actually uh, contracted with nonprofits around the country. So we called and would like sell tickets and raise money for, I've worked on the Dallas symphony orchestra campaign for a long time, for example, even though I was based in Chicago. So a little, a little scammy maybe, but ultimately, uh, raising money for nonprofits. But anyway, but the company was based in Milwaukee and just had a satellite office in Chicago and then Christmas time rolls around and we're all expected to donate money to buy a gift for this boss who lives in Milwaukee that none of us have ever met or even seen before. Um, and it was just ex the expectation. So, I mean, that's the issue here is that if it was coming out of the goodness of people's hearts, um, or they were so, you know, over the course of the year, they were so moved by the generosity of their employer that they wanted to give back. That would be one thing. It would still be, you know, uh, moving forward, an exploitative dynamic that I do think is at the heart of our economic system and that we shouldn't um, help to uh, engage through doing, you know, engaging in that type of behavior. But even if that was the case, that would be a problem. But at least... Uh, it would be coming out of people's personal motivations versus more exploitation coming from, you know, whoever is organizing this boss gift buying in the first place. And I cite, you know, a number of examples of people. If you look through, you know, Twitter, or Reddit, or any of these social sites, you'll just see reams and reams of people, of people giving, um, telling their personal stories of this and how uncomfortable it made them. As soon as I published the article, I heard from friends and people on the internet all over the place that have done this and wanted to stop. That didn't want to do it in the first place, but they felt pressure to do so because it's become so ingrained as part of our workplace culture that, you know, holiday time rolls around. Okay. It's time to, you know, give back, uh, the, our, our, 
you know, measly wages, many of these people that are being uh, impacted are, you know, lower wage workers to the very person that alienated you from your labor in the first place, which is your boss. And to me, it just, you know, I know it sounds like, you know, it's a Marxist analysis essentially, but it's also just like a common sense analysis. Like you made, you made this money, you should use it to spend on your friends on your family and the people you care about, not the very person who is dictating the terms of your work and your wages. Uh, it just seems pretty absurd. And yet we don't, um, we don't talk about it very much. I mean, in researching this, I didn't find much writing about it other than tons of uh, media articles imploring you to buy gifts for your boss. There was one in Forbes that was like, why you absolutely positively must buy a gift for your boss this season or their lists of laundry lists of gifts you can get for your boss. So the only time we talk about it is when we're kind of like, you know, encouraging the behavior. So I wanted to just write something pretty clearly discouraging it and uh, saying once and for all, we need to end this predatory practice and stop buying holiday gifts for the boss. Uh, I would say before I get to my follow-up question uh, to what you just said, I, you're slowly creeping slowly, but you're creeping in this direction toward shaming your readers and i have made a proclamation a resolution no more shaming which i probably will break within the next five minutes uh but i'm with you 100 on this one so i need to know what was the reason cited by forbes uh in uh their article for why you should buy a present for your boss it was just the same thing. All of these places, right. Is that, you know, you want to um, get a step up in your workplace. You want to show your, you want to set yourself apart um, from your coworkers and you want to prove your worth on your team. Um, so, I mean, it's a purely, it's basically a materialist, you know, analysis just saying, look, you want to help yourself get ahead in the workplace. You do that by buying a gift that's going to set you apart from the rest of your coworkers who are also buying gifts for your boss. Um, and so it's, you know, economically advantageous for you to, um, to give your money back to your employer, basically. You know, and uh, so let's just go to succession. Let's just discuss succession. It's <laughs> on my mind. I didn't, I was looking for someone to talk about it with Miles. So I'm so glad you've watched uh, the first season and a couple of episodes of season two. You get the, you get the gist of the show. Nothing you will see uh, in future episodes of succession will significantly change in any way. Uh, the to undercut the theory of getting a present for your boss because somehow or other it'll make him happy to you. The the underlying sentiment uh, in in succession or the underlying view of life is utterly cynical, and so nobody in succession or none of the main characters take on face value anything anybody says to them. They always work from the assumption that anything anybody says to them is intended largely to manipulate them, usually by stroking their egos, sucking up to them. So any Anyone who's an underling who says something nice to a boss, the boss immediately discounts it, mocks them for saying it, and goes, what do you want? That's like the, almost anything. Oh, honey, I love you. What do you want? What do you want from me today? It's really one of the most uh, cynical shows in terms of what motivates people and why just the notion of doing the right thing for somebody other than yourself is laughed at and scorned at and derided in this show. Uh, and so to that point, how in the world is it even going to matter anyway? If the boss just sees you giving this present as a way of just sucking up to him, they don't believe in the sincerity behind it, then what's the point? 
Or do you, are you saying, Miles, is there evidence to show that bosses do like to be paid off in a sense, even though they scorn and dismiss the sincerity of the actual offering? Do they somewhere down deep inside want and crave it? And do they reward people who give it to them? There's a uh, iconic scene early on in the National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. I, al- I also didn't include this in the article, though. I maybe should have, um, where Clark Griswold, the Chevy Chase character, um, he goes into his uh, boss's office. And the whole, you know, I guess I can give a spoiler. The movie's from, like, 30 years ago. But uh, <laughs> the whole, like, dr- drama of it is he's expecting to get a Christmas bonus to pay for a, a indoor pool or a, a in-ground pool that he wants to build. And um, part of that is, you know, he... he uh, I forget his boss's name, but his boss is some, you know, corporate big wiggy type. Uh, and he's like an inventor or something. Um, and he buys his uh, boss a gift and goes into his office to give it to him. And the boss is on the phone and he's just, and you know, uh, uh, Chevy Chase gives an explanation of what he wanted to give him this uh, token of his appreciation, what have you. And then the boss's response is just, "Oh yeah, put him with the rest of them." And it's just a pile of fruit cakes <laughs> and weird gifts and so. And that's, I think that that it speaks volumes to. And then he just tries to get rid of having to talk to you know Chevy Chase's character uh, 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 at all after that. And then also he doesn't give him a holiday bonus, which I think is a good you know actual explication of the dynamic that is often the case here is where people are trying to do a transaction uh, actually versus gift giving you know they're trying to get something out of this and so they're like oh i'll you know put some money into a simple gift and then that'll flow back to me through a holiday bonus or something but that's all you know a wish and a prayer it doesn't actually you know there's no one-to-one relationship there and it certainly doesn't happen in uh, national lampoon's christmas where he doesn't get the christmas bonus and then his crazy uh cousin uh, kidnaps the boss at the end which is well, yeah. actually maybe not a bad message uh for uh, for a hollywood movie uh kidnap your boss but uh yeah i think that that's more of an explanation of what's actually going on there is people are just given it's it's becomes a rote part of the routine you know you're just like oh i get my boss a gift and then the, the, the boss knows he's going to get some gifts they are going to get some gifts and um they just treat it as part of the whole process they don't care one way or another and you know who knows if they're even checking who's giving what and certainly if they're giving the amount of fruitcake that was given in that movie i don't think the boss is even that happy to receive it in the first place so yeah i don't know if there's that much sincerity going on at any part of that whole process yeah all right, everybody, uh, we're running out of time. You check out, well, Miles, you tell folks where they can uh, uh, read articles like that one and the others that you've written and other good stuff from In These Times. Of course. So, yeah, please check out uh, InTheseTimes.com. Um, you can subscribe to the print it, monthly print issue. I write a monthly column in there. I just posted some examples of it to my Twitter account, which is at Miles K. Lassen. Um, I write a column called This Month in Late Capitalism that just rounds up some of the most uh, absurd developments in our uh, you know, modern political ecosystem. And um, 
And if you subscribe to our weekly newsletter, which Ben referenced earlier, every Saturday morning, um, you'll get a rundown of the web stories we published. And that's mostly what I work on as a web editor. Um, And, you know, I regularly write stuff as well. So you can read my writing uh, there. And from some of our other great writers, I just published an article today by Hamilton Nolan, um, one of our um, writers who often covers labor, but he wrote a piece about this whole um, mansion build back better situation um, that is, uh, I think, a pretty good take. So um, check that out. Yeah, read, uh, subscribe to the newsletter. It's free. Um, and uh, listen and subscribe to the Ben Jarowski show as well, because it is a great source for entertainment, news, politics, and, um, you know, we got uh, a, a good crew with uh, Hollywood Ben and Dr. D holding it down. <laughs> Hollywood Ben, maybe. Uh, yes, Hollywood Ben and his bungalow overlooking beautiful Hollywood Hills and the Hollywood sign. Uh, Miles, uh, have a great Christmas. And uh, we already booked you for the new year. And uh, when we come back, we'll have a, I have two resolutions. One, uh, get, get into the labor part of the conversation that we totally neglected, but that's, you know, how it goes sometimes. And also I, I'm serious when you finished up with succession, a whole show dedicated to it. Cause I think it's, uh, it has a lot to say about where we are right now, uh, in this country, this crazy country, uh, that I've lived in my entire life. So that's your assignment, uh, heading into the next year. Uh, Miles Conflesson. All right, very good. That's uh, Miles Conflesson, the pride and joy of Whitney Young High School, uh, proud graduate, uh, Dolphin for Life, uh, and writer editor for In These Times. I also want to thank the man, the myth, the legend, the pride and joy of Walton, Illinois, without whom this show would be possible. And as Miles Conflesson and Bernie Sanders will tell you, back home in Alton, they call him Dr. D, and the D stands for Demarvelous. Give yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. Mm-hmm.